Good morning, everyone. This is the transition time. <laughs> I'm still Bill. I wonder how much um, your week has been like the last week. A lot of stuff happens between Sunday to Sunday. And whether it's bright and cheery or challenging, um, everything that we go through between Sundays, uh, God is able to intervene and give us the strength that we need. And I pray that you have been leaning on uh, God this week. So I want to pray uh, before I speak. Father, thank you for your presence here this morning. Thank you for the abundance of grace that you continually offer to us. The forgiveness that we need and need to give to others sometimes. And I just pray, Jesus, this morning as we come back to your word that you would be our teacher. I pray that we would have ears to hear, hearts to absorb, and the will, God, to um, do what you're going to ask us to do today. Father, I pray for my good friend Paul this morning on sabbatical. And I pray, God, that you would fill his soul with joy and his heart with peace. I pray that you would replenish his reserves. I pray that you would renew his spirit and his mind. I pray that you would restore his passion and refresh his vision for the church. And again, God, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would just use it to impact our hearts and lives this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the final installment of Jesus in the Upside Down Kingdom. And the title of this morning's message is From Insignificant to Momentous. And I had to do a lot of thinking because I can't talk to you about that unless I can relate to it myself, that it would really be impactful for you. Um, and probably in my lifetime, the most greatest shift I've ever had, had to make or um, a directive that had to become so clear to me over time was literally what I would call the call of God on my life. A younger generation isn't talking about the call of God so much anymore, which is kind of sad to me. Um, because when we make commitments that's based on our own judgment and those kinds of things, it doesn't necessarily have a lot of stick to it. But when one is convinced that God is saying this to me, it brings something to us that we settle into. So from an insignificant to momentous, uh, my illustration is of small beginnings, and when it come to the call of God in my life, it started to me when I was in Alberta, uh, distanced from God, when he started poking, and I was just minding my own business, enjoying my job, and more in, enjoying the life that I had in Alberta when God started knocking on my door. And I didn't recognize it at first as that, but it did, and it led ultimately to me deciding that there's a certain verse in Scripture that is my verse, my life verse, and it's Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And it's, it's profound to me because it's all about small beginnings. 
We don't worry about the end point because we're not there yet. But small beginnings are, are important. And Paul says, for I am confident of this very thing. He's talking about himself, but he's also talking to the church. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, the small beginning as it is, will carry it on to completion until the day that Christ returns, which is the end point, which isn't our territory or concern. Our concern is the journey in between the insignificant and the momentous. The theme this morning is this, taken from Luke 13, verses 18 to 35. In this passage, Jesus uses several illustrations to teach us about the kingdom of God. And specifically, that small beginnings, far from being insignificant, often result in having considerable impact can lead to significant life change and that can produce cultural and even global impact. For example, Jesus' birth, in my estimation, was nothing out of the ordinary to the general population. It was just another baby, at least what they perceived. And that was his start. A baby who would become a cultural disruptor and a world changer. Not so if you would compare today's definition of influencers on social media, they just can't touch or compare with the impact Jesus has had in his lifetime. He is the ultimate of influencers. Still today by his spirit, he's nudging, drawing people to himself so that people could experience transformed lives. The big idea today is that Jesus knows what he is doing with you, in you. He knows why he's doing it, even if it conflicts with those who think they are always right. Do you know someone like that? <laughs> I'm glad you're chuckling. It's better than the other way. It's hard walking alongside someone who is always right. Really, there's not much opportunity to interject or offer suggestions or even rebuttal because they're right. Jesus arrived on planet Earth with a mission, which was to do what was necessary for people without hope to find it in him. Restoring their broken relationship with God in the, in the process by means of his own death on a, as a criminal on a Roman cross, and he did it, he did it by means of his own own death, but he did it right in the face of his detractors and his enemies who truly believed that they were doing God a favor as they were killing Jesus. That's how they saw it. That's what they believed. And in his own upside-down way, he silenced his murderers with a 12-word prayer request, profound to me, even today. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He's asking for forgiveness, pleading for these people who are killing him because they don't understand what they're doing. 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In a mere 33 years, Jesus had gone from a helpless baby in a manger to the Savior of the world, from significant to momentous, his life having a great importance and significance to all of humanity. Now, let's pick up where we left off last week. Context-wise, Jesus is still in the synagogue with the same angry, humiliated religious leaders because he had healed a woman on the Sabbath. And the rest of the people, other than the religious leaders, the rest of the people are totally impressed with Jesus. Have you ever felt great because somebody stood up to somebody that was bullying somebody or something like that? It feels so good that somebody will do something to change something. And Jesus did that. He didn't mind meddling and poking. In Luke 13, verses 18 to 19, Jesus asks two rhetorical questions of those present. What is the kingdom of God like, and what shall I compare it to? Answering his question, he says, it is like a tiny mustard seed which a man planted in his garden... It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Sources uh, say that Jesus was not comparing the mustard seed to all other seeds in the world, but to seeds that a local Palestinian farmer may have planted in his garden. There are seeds that are smaller than this mustard seed, this black mustard seed. But this black mustard seed is absolutely the smallest seed ever sown by a first century farmer in that part of the world. It's also true, as many modern encyclopedias will tell you, that the black mustard seed in Israel will typically grow to up to 12 feet high. 12 feet high, large enough to hold a bird's nest. Some would say it's ludicrous because the seed is so small, but that's not true. The point here is that the kingdom of God began in an almost imperceptible reality. Hard to imagine that it was there or see it or know it. But that over time would span the globe through Jesus' followers. Fast forward a moment to Luke 17, chapter, or verses 20 and 21. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? I think they were testing him. They're trying to get under his skin like they tried to do always. Jesus said the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say here it is or it's over there for the kingdom of God is already among you. It's already in your midst. By Jesus coming, the kingdom of God began. By the death on the cross and the resurrection, it was sealed. He's here. We can always talk about Jesus' presence in the moment. He's here. The Pharisees don't even realize that God's kingdom has already existed and that it was closer to them that they would, than they could ever have imagined and probably wouldn't want to believe. So in verses 20 and 21, again, Jesus asks the question, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? He says, is it as like yeast that a woman took and mixed in a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Once upon a time, in a land not too far away, I was a baker in a small store in Kitchener. 
I was a student at Emmanuel Bible College, and this store was not too far down the road, so I got the job, and I was being trained, and I was given significant training, shadowing this, this uh, most important official baker, always when the sun went down, because that's when the baker did their work. When it was dark, when it was quiet, when no one was around, and the, and the store was shut. Then the day came when I got to do my first time alone solo bake. And I was kind of nervous about it, but kind of excited about it. I wanted to prove that I could do it because I think I was trained well. But I was also nervous just to make, you know, what if something went awry? No pun on the rye. So the day came to bake solo, and I already knew that Yeast donuts were the hardest to, to bake, hardest to make, hard, hardest to put together, hardest to make them come out looking exactly like they're supposed to look. And there were pictures of what they were supposed to look like. And I had to do that. So on that memorable night, I had everything ready for the final mix, so I put the yeast into the batch, and I'd keep an eye on it from now and then, and this rising pile of dough, it just rested nicely on this counter. And I went and started to do something with another, probably another kind of a donut before I came back. And I turned to this batch of yeast that was permeated the dough. And my, how it had risen. It had risen so much, grown so much, that it had rolled off the, the, the desk and onto the floor. And immediately I'm thinking, I'm fired. <laughs> At least I'm fired. And I had to start all over again. Didn't get back to the dorm until like 1.30 in the morning. And I don't, I can't remember. Maybe it's denial. I can't remember. But I don't think I was a baker for very long. <laughs> Maybe it was God's sign. You can't do this. The point is that like yeast that slowly but surely permeates the dough, so the kingdom of God has grown and has permeated much of the world through the millions of lives that have been transformed by the grace and power of God. The kingdom is very active and very real. It's at this juncture that Jesus and his disciples left the synagogue and headed out on a road trip. In verses 22 and 23, it says, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? I don't know if it's a trick question. I don't know what they're trying to get at, but Jesus typically doesn't give them the answer that they're looking for. So having asked the question, Jesus said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I say, will try to enter and will not be able to. He's putting a picture in front of them that suggests that, that with difficulty, in another verse we, we hear this in Scripture, with difficulty you find entrance into the kingdom of God. How badly do you want it? What will you pay for it? What will you do to see that it's a reality in your own life? There's a parallel passage to this short 20, verses 22 and 23 in Luke chapter 13. Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14 reads this way. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction or hell, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. 
And then he gives this illustration in verse 25 and following. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. And in that day when they shut the door, that means the cattle were in their part of the house, which is the barn part, and they were in their part, and they're not going to get up to let anybody in the house till morning because everything is set for the night. Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you, you or where you came from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know who you are or where you came from. Away from me, all of you evildoers. There will be weeping there that is in hell and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south, south and will take up their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. I don't know about you, but most Christians use these last couple of phrases about the last first and the first last. Uh, we kind of joke about it all the time. So if we're at the back of the line, we think we're better than them because we're eventually we're going to get to the front. It's very significant here because in this reversal of people think that they're going to be with God, they're going to be in the opposite place in space. So as I read this, it reminded me again of the cross. Imagine in your mind, Jesus is slowly dying. The thieves beside him, the, the criminals beside him are also slowly dying. And I'm sure that it's not always a quiet thing when you're on a Roman cross, um, hardly able to breathe because of how it's affecting your body. And Jesus is there slowly dying, and one of the thieves, also near death, has realized that he deserves to die for his sins, for his crimes. He says that to the other thief, stop mocking him, we're in... We deserve what we're getting, and he doesn't. So he, he realizes this, and he also understands that Jesus is innocent. He feels remorse. He feels remorse, and with that feeling, he's having a change of heart about life and death and about Jesus. So he says to D Jesus, and you probably are familiar with these, many of you, these words, in Luke 23, 42, remember me when you come into your what? Kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, today I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. In paradise. Paradise is where we immediately go at death with Jesus, not to heaven yet, because that's not the time and the place. But you will be with me today in paradise. The point is you are going to be with Jesus. And most would say that's all that really matters, that we're going to be with Jesus. The point is that there is a gate and a road that leads to life in Jesus' presence for all of eternity. But the gate, Jesus said, is small and the road is narrow and few people find it. And I'm wondering if that means to persevere until you get to that place. Few are those who, who find it. 
There's also a gate and a road that leads to destruction, to hell, to a place where those who enter are forever separated from God's love. And as I understand it, it's, it's a horrible place. No one would ever want to intentionally go there. Um, but when we don't process what we're taught about life and death and heaven and hell and just put it off as really, well, it's just not that significant or serious... When we're in that place, the road, this road is called to be wide. It's overflowing with a sea of humanity, heading for an end that they are not aware of and certainly not prepared for. A verse came to my mind as I was preparing for this message, kind of in this context. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. And it has to do with you and I and our responsibility to emulate ourselves in other people's lives, to serve people because Jesus said to, to, so they can get a glimpse of what Jesus is like in us. The verse says, become sober-minded as you ought. In other words, this is a very serious talk. Be sober, become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. He's telling the church in Corinth that you had so many opportunities to be good influencers for Jesus Christ, but they don't even know who he is because you had never told them. You've never modeled it. You've never lived it. One last piece in this journey, in this chapter Verses 31 to 35. Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. And I quote from from verse 31. Some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replied, tell that old fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and for the next For surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. He's talking about his death. He's talking about the length of being in the grave. But he's also talking about the fact that prophets were typically killed in Jerusalem. And he is determined. He has his eyes fixed on, his heart focused on getting to Jerusalem. Because he knows that is where God's destiny is for him. So in any case, he says, I keep going to get to Jerusalem. And then in the next verse, he says, oh, Jerusalem. And I think this is with great emotion. Jesus' compassionate heart going out to the people that are ignorant, that are not listening, that are not paying attention. They don't even care. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. In other words, they decided for themselves to not come to the Lord. It wouldn't be long after after he said this. uh, He says this, Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, that gives us a picture in our minds of uh, Palm Sunday. But it wouldn't be long before Jesus would enter Jerusalem 
going down from the Mount of Olives into the city on a donkey, among great fanfare, waving of palm branches with an air of joy and celebration, and complete with the crowd singing the ancient verses from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, where the psalmist writes, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The point is, Jesus is still waiting for those who will come. He still longs to gather his people together, and his heart still breaks over those who will not come, the ones who aren't willing. A number of years ago, I, I saw a video, and I'm probably not going to uh, portray it the best that I could, but... Um, it was about an interview with an atheist, very prominent atheist, an American atheist. Um, very vocal, very outspoken. But he had a neighbor. And he had a neighbor that was just constantly annoying him um, because he kept um, trying to cross paths very intentionally with this atheist and give him a Bible. And he was doing this for an extended period of time. And finally, this atheist took the Bible. I don't know that he ever read it, but he took the Bible. And again, he's doing this interview, and he knows that this guy with the Bible that was pestering him was a Christian. And he said as he looked into the camera, looking at the audience, and talking to Christians, and saying, I totally disagree with what this guy thinks. I don't agree with the Bible. I don't think it is whatever. He basically discounted everything, but one thing is significant, he said. The fact is that this neighbor of mine did everything that he could to have me do what he thought was the most important thing in the world that I could do. And he was persistent until I took the Bible. And he, and he said this to close, and this, this was the piece that shocked me. He said, most Christians must be really angry with other people and really hate them because they never tell people about Jesus. And this is an atheist saying this. And I always have a hard time um, looking and thinking about that bigger picture because sometimes we have opportunities and chances, but we don't. And so people don't come, maybe because we never said something. So I want to ask you a few questions as I close, just to ponder. Are you on the road to life? Are you one of the few that have found that way into God's presence? Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's people all over the globe that are trying to figure out their way to get into God's good graces on their own. Jesus has persistently said there is one way, and I'm that way. And God wants us to hear what he's saying about this because lives are at stake in many ways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the cool thing is the prevenient grace of God, which means God is actively, always actively drawing people to himself. He's drawing them to himself so that 
it can fit with Jesus' perspective about what God wants to do. He's a part of that. So when you place your faith in Jesus, when you place your life in his hands, you become a part of the kingdom of God. And what a joy it is when other people that we know become members of the kingdom of God because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. I trust it's true of you. Remember Jesus' words just a moment ago in one of these passages, make every effort to be in that place. Make every effort. Jesus, I thank you today that you have made many of us children of God because we placed our faith in you. And God, help us never to be satisfied with just having that designation or being in that place, but Father, to live our lives for you that people could see you in us. And I thank you, Father, that you have a gentle, nudging Holy Spirit that compels us sometimes or persuades us to take action with our faith and to share it with other people, to invest our time and energy in other people's lives so that they can know the joy that we have in knowing you. And Father, it's not about guilt or about shame, but it's listening to your voice and just doing what you ask us to do. And today I pray, Lord, that maybe for some of us here it might be a time to make a decision, something that we've been putting off for a long time. But we can't, just like me in Alberta, can't get away from your poking. And may we listen to that today, Father. And you may you be glorified as we live our life between Sundays where, we, where real life is lived. And may we be an inspiration to those around us. May we have answers adequate to the questions that people may ask us about our faith. But more than anything, Jesus, may you, your life be glorified in us as we live for you. And it's for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.